2: Kevin, what are you thankful for this month of November? Well, Rob, I'm thankful that we have
1: so many great behind-the-curtain listeners, and that so many of them financially support us so we can continue to capture
2: the stories of Broadway's most legendary performers. And support my Herve Villachez habit. Oh, God. I'm not going to do it. I won't do it. Want to help us? I'm just kidding. Want to help us be even more thankful this November? Head, over, head on over. I've had too much cranberry sauce. <laughs> head on over to Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, com, and search for Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends, and set a monthly donation. Even a dollar a month helps us. We are entirely self-funded. So, please help, keep us on the air. I feel like PBS. It's like PBS. Your just contributions say that. help us continue doing what we are doing. Here is a tote bag. Uh, what are we doing this November, Rob? By being thankful that we can interview legends, eating stuffing, and singing Turkey Lurky Time. Yes, I know it's a Christmas song, but it's about turkey. Go lay down, Rob. We are thankful for all of you, and we will be even more
1: thankful if you can head over to patreon.com. That's P A T R E O N.com.
2: Hi, I'm Rob Schneider. And I'm Kevin David Thomas. And this is Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Broadway Curtain, and make sure to join our Facebook page at Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. And follow us on Instagram at Broadway Curtain Podcast Plus, you can always listen to our podcasts on Broadway World and Stitcher. Today's guest is one of the most beloved directors working in the American theater today, and the definition of a mensch. As an actor, he appeared in productions of Fiddler on the Roof, Grease, Once in a Lifetime, and Tintypes, to name just a few. As a director, he's collaborated with such dramatists as John Guare, Christopher Durang, Neil Simon, Stephen Sondheim, John Weidman, Ken Ludwig, and Steve Martin. And that's just a few of them.
1: Right, and you might break his resume down uh, into a couple decades. Let's say the 80s, which included Sister Mary Ignatius Explains It All For You, The House of Blue Leaves, Anything Goes, Lend Me a Tenor. The 90s had Six Degrees of Separation guys and dolls that beautiful revival a funny thing happened on the way to the forum smoky joe's cafe and then in the past 20 years the man who came to dinner lacage bronx tale both of them sister act hello dolly with Bette Midler, and next season's the music man with hugh jackman of course, this is after he works on Mrs. Doubtfire in Seattle. So, Are you tired yet? When I does am. he sleep? That's my big
2: question, <laughs> is when does he sleep? To tell us what it was like to work with such legends as Neil Simon, Stephen Sondheim, Nathan Lane, Lynn Thigpen, Jane Meadows, Meryl Streep, and so many more. Here is the son of legendary New Jersey butcher Cy Zax, four-time Tony Award-winning director Jerry Zax. That was great, you
0: guys. That was great. Thank I lived you. it. I oh, mean, my, my God. Goodness. I feel so old. <laughs> yes. When, when,
2: when we had Larry Hawkman here, he said, you know, Jerry's dad was the best butcher there ever was. So tell us about your parents. They had well, such an interesting life. Oh They're
0: goodness. both Holocaust survivors. Yeah. You know, my mother spent a year and survived a year in Auschwitz. My father changed his identity, jumped a train to escape from the Nazis, and managed to stay safe for about five years. Yeah. Was reunited with my mother after the war. They both survived, what obviously. A and yeah, I was born in Stuttgart in 1946, you know. Um they had absolutely no interest in show business whatsoever. Uh, <laughs> so and naturally. Th- yeah, of course. No, and Larry Hawkman, bless him, uh, I delivered orders to his mother yeah. from my father's kosher <laughs> what butcher. What a small world. world. Yeah, oh yeah, my very goodness. small.
2: A yeah. small world indeed. So, okay, so you grew up in New Jersey, right? And then when did you start going to the theater?
0: I didn't. I didn't go to the theater. I had a secret vice. I would play old rock and roll records uh, in the basement of my home, and I would sing them to myself in the mirror. Oh. And I would do, and it was quiet. It was private. I didn't want anyone to know I was doing it. My parents would have thought I was crazy, but I loved it. But I let that go. Uh, I tried out for a school play at Patterson East Side. I got so nervous, I choked in the audition, and vowed never to have anything to do with the theater again. Oh my. And I graduated, and. Uh, I was off to college. Uh, I was lucky enough to get into Dartmouth College. Oh, and, wow, yeah, yeah, up in, in H- Hanover, in Hampshire. Hampshire, yeah. yeah. And I went up, you know, I went up there. I was 16. I hadn't even turned 17 yet. Oh, I wow. know, right? And uh, I all I knew was I was going to either be a doctor, a lawyer, or an engineer, okay. the reputable profession. Yes. That's exactly. or so I thought. Yeah. You know? So I got up there, and it was, wor- I had never spent a night away from home until I went to college, didn't go to overnight camp. You know, I grew up sort of terrified of everything. You huh. know, uh, and there I was in Hanover, New Hampshire, and I just loved the place. It was so different than the world I had grown up it in. It is
1: very like idyllic it uh, is, college town in it, a way. Oh yeah, it, it, yeah. It, it's, it's perfect. It's very sweet you know? town, and it's yeah.
0: beautiful. And and I began living the life of an undergraduate, which <laughs> meant uh, trying to get really good grades so that I could get some financial aid or more mm-hmm. financial aid. Because in those days, it was one of the most expensive colleges in the country. It was $3,000 a year. Oh. That was it. I mean, think about it. Anyway, yeah. but it was, uh, and I, I, again, I was pre-med, and uh, for my first year, which was between 1963 and 64, when I went back to college in uh, 64, 65, at Winter Carnival, I had a blind date. And I took her to the Glee Club concert and a hockey game, and I took her to the show that the Dartmouth players did. And it was wonderful town and it changed my life. And I'm not I'm not exaggerating, it just changed my life. I fell in love so completely with what I had seen that I had a huge wake-up call and decided to try to do some of it myself just seeing this one yeah you
1: had never seen anything on broadway Mm, no
0: no i don't think so um I don't think so. We lived in, even though we lived in Patterson, New Jersey, which was relatively close to New York. Yeah. My parents didn't really have any interest in going to shows and I didn't listen to cast albums. Like I said, you I listened you listen to, to Rock, yeah. E- exactly. Which and is why this
1: Bernstein yeah. scored yeah, this no, sweet little show. No, no, and then you just
0: No, the lights went down and there was such an explosion of light and joy and comedy and uh uh, uh storytelling that I was just blown away by and uh When I came back uh, 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 the following fall, I was determined to try out, because I wanted to act. And I was uh, determined to try out for as many of the shows as I could. And I started getting parts, and I started loving acting. And uh, then came the critical point. uh, At the end of junior year, we had to sort of decide what you wanted to do after college. And uh, I took the law boards. Uh, I applied and got into several law schools. And at the same time, I applied for a graduate assistantship at Smith College, which was then uh, all women. Yeah. But it um, it was beginning a new MFA program in acting. And they accepted me. And uh, it didn't cost my parents anything, which was very important to me. They really couldn't afford to support what I was doing. And um, so I went to Smith as a very overweight uh young actor who was very full of himself and thought he was the greatest thing since you know what. And, uh, you know, I uh, was quickly put in my place and began to attack the whole uh, idea of being an actor. And by that I meant, I mean, I lost 40 pounds between my birthday on September and Thanksgiving, oh my! Uh, uh, I began taking dance classes. I lost the weight because I was in coeducational dance classes in tights. And it was not pretty, guys. It's built in. It was, it's it built was, in. I mean, I saw myself in the mirror, and yeah. it was like, no. And so I, I attacked that. And it was then, after I lost the weight and started taking dance class, that I started to... Play, I would lock myself in the dance studio by myself and play sound uh, LPs, original cast albums, over and over again, and I would um, dance to them. Yeah. And uh, one of them was uh, one, it was George M. and Hello Dolly. and Man of La Mancha, and uh, yeah. that was it. I mean, yeah. there were a couple of others, but yeah. I, but I, you know, wore them out playing them, and I would just dance like crazy. And it was around that time. That a friend and I went to New York and we stood in the back to see Hello Dolly. Oh. Wow. Yeah. And I saw Carol Channing, and the same thing that happened to me when I saw Wonderful Town happened to me all over again. But now it was Broadway. Yeah. And it was thrilling. And
1: And you were doing it too at this point. I,
0: you know, I was you doing it in theater, grad school. You know? yeah, 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 that's right. I yeah. was, you know, I was doing that thing that my parents were very distressed about. I was curious about that. <laughs> as oh, well. they, yeah. They, they, almost went into mourning. You know, it was. Uh, no, no, it was just so mean, sad. They yeah, really it's were not disappointed. The
1: plan that they probably thought, well, you were gonna...
0: an Ivy League education to be an actor. <laughs> you know, like, please, please, what are you doing to me, anyway? Yeah. So I saw Dolly. I went back to stand in the same spot two more times. I saw Ginger Rogers, and Pearl Bailey, and oh, dreamt no. that uh, this this is what I wanted. This is what I wanted to do, but. Um, then fast forward fifty years or something, yeah. and I did. Yeah. But but there's <laughs> a lot went on in the meantime. So that was you know I, I finished in, yeah. I finished graduate school in in the uh, spring of '69, right. and then came to New York to be an actor. To be an actor. Did uh-huh. you? To, oh
2: yeah. Did you come to New York with anybody? Did you and a roommate come? No, up uh, you?
0: Yeah, we had two roommates from Smith. We split an apartment. It was a total of seventy-five dollars a month, oh, twenty-five <laughs> each, and. I was so happy, I was, I, and, I, and what happened was I got my copy of Backstage, I circled the auditions, I was lucky enough to have gotten my equity card, mm-hmm. um, at the summer, Dartmouth Summer Repertory Theater was an equity company, oh. and they had an equity core <clears throat> company and many apprentices, and they realized that they were one equity contract short, and for some reason the artistic director asked me if I wanted to join equity. This is when I was a junior. Or oh, wow. Or, yeah, and I said, sure. So I came armed with an equity card, right. which meant access to auditions. Yeah. auditions. Exactly. Yeah. So I can remember it as, oh, man, you guys, you're bringing, you're bringing me way back. <laughs> Thank you. No, I love it. I love it. <laughs> no, I went, my first audition I went to was for the Performing Arts Repertory Theater, uh, Children's Theater Organization that was run by Jay Harnick and Charlie Hull mm. and they went on to become Theater Works USA. Right. And I auditioned my heart out and I was still staying at my parents' home with one of my roommates. We oh. hadn't even moved into the city yet. <laughs> and I got a call and I hung up the phone and my my roommate said, "Did you get a call back?" And I said, "I got it. I got it." Oh. And it was the part of Young Tom Edison in the show <laughs> Young Tom Edison. Oh my God! And so I rehearsed, and uh, so began an association with theater works uh, that lasted for about two or three years. Mm-hmm. I did Young Tom Edison, Young Abe Lincoln, Young Tom Jefferson, <laughs> Young Ben Franklin—the yeah. title role, man. Right. And <laughs> yeah. but it was an extraordinary preparation and training, you know. Oh, yeah. And it was Definitely. so much fun, and uh, that's how my acting began. And for ten years. Uh, I was very, uh, I think the thing I'm proudest of is that in those 10 years, I never had to take um, a day job. You know, I was able to survive on various acting contracts Mm -hmm. and occasional unemployment Mm -hmm. and uh, Mm -hmm. because I was determined not to ask my parents for help. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I was too afraid to fail, actually. Yes, of uh, course. And I loved it. So, you know, uh, and for the next 10 years, I acted, you know, in... uh, plays off-Broadway, uh, uh, on-Broadway, in commercials, on a soap opera, in well, a film. When you, know. you
1: would have to sing, was there a go-to song that you always did um, yeah,
0: there were. Yeah, the, I, mm-hmm. I would do Soon It's Gonna Rain, Ooh. and I would do It's Not Unusual by Tom Jones. Oh, you know? okay. oh yeah, no, they were really bad. And, and I, <laughs> but I did them with great gusto. Oh, yes? Then, then I started to figure out that I needed to create a little bit of an event in my audition that is to say do something unexpected mm-hmm. you know something unusual but not stupid oh, you right, know right. and so uh, I remember auditioning for Neil Simon and Manny Eisenberg and Bobby Moore I think for uh, an understudy assignment in um, uh, oh, what is what's the show with uh, it's not she loves it, little me Oh. Little me. Oh, my God. Yes. And so one of the parts was of a comic Nazi. And so I stood in front of them in the stage of the Alvin Theater, now the Neil Simon Theater. Mm-hmm. And I sang, smile though your heart is aching. Smile even though it's breaking. When there are clouds in the sky, you'll get by if you smile. And I went oh. <laughs> on into this operatic manic, maniacal riff on a crazed Nazi and then finished it with, you'll find that life a stupid file if you'll just smile. So I did a little three-act play. Oh, yeah. And it was, uh, you know, it involved taking a chance. Yeah. So to anyone who's listening and thinking about this, take a chance. Plan it. Work it. Rehearse it come in with a plan don't you know and uh, be brave Mm -hmm. oh be brave take a chance because there are so many people out there doing what you you know wanting to do what you want to do and so you know you've got to you've got to work on it you know and you've got to love what you do so anyway that was so that was 10 years of auditioning and acting and you know, all extraordinary experiences. You know, I, I got a part in a made-for-TV movie that shot about 20 minutes from my parents' hometown in Poland in a movie called The Wall, so I got to see... Oh, my. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was fantastic. I got to see their hometown. I got to see Auschwitz, where my mother had been imprisoned mm-hmm. and uh, for a year. She was in there for a year to a the year day. God. Yeah, one year to the day, oh, yeah. in January 18th, 1944, out... January eighteenth, nineteen forty-five, and and yeah, and I got to be in a TV made-for-TV movie called Attica, Uh based on the Attica riots, and got to you know act with Morgan Freeman and uh, Len you know wonderful people yeah. and um, mm. yeah so i was very busy as an actor no interest in directing
1: and so did you <laughs> were you navigating your way through plays and musicals and doing choosing to do both i mean wanting it, to
0: do everything, everything you wanting to both. do everything and i you know i i had one i had friends who were not friends but casting directors who liked me, you know, who would submit me, and they'd send me to chorus calls for Fiddler, mm-hmm. and I couldn't dance well enough, you know, and I, you know, and and, 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 nor could I really sing well enough to be in the vocal ensemble, you know, right. but I was really persistent, and, uh, you, you know, I, um, uh, I, you know, some of these auditions, You know, Greece, for example. Well, you know, in 1972, uh, around 1972, I think the original company of Greece Mm was formed. And I couldn't even get an audition. And I knew this music, remember? In the basement. Exactly. I love this music, and I thought, Damn it. it! You know, if only I, they would see me, but I couldn't get past the open equity call. The was follow- this a
1: popular? Sh- did everyone was everyone talking about this show about uh, Greece? Yeah. Oh,
0: e- yeah. You I know, mean, you there, know was, like, there, there was.
1: Everyone f- kind of knows that this is going to be something we want to be in. A hundred percent.
0: Every Perfect. young Thank person you. who wanted to be in the theater wanted to be in Greece. You know. Yeah. Well, it opened. It was a huge, huge smash. And then a year later, by then I had an agent. I got an appointment. I went into the audition. And sang uh, sixteen candles. Sixteen candles, yeah. you know, so I, Except Perfect. I did all the parts. I'd sang all the parts. Oh. I you know, I did the lead and the bass and oh. <laughs> and then did uh, uh She Rock's in the treetop ball rockin' robin, mm-hmm. yes. And and uh, uh, they and I remember again, it's over yesterday on the stage of the Royale, uh, they said, Do you know Hound Dog? And I went, Sure. And uh, uh, Phyllis I can't remember Phyllis's last name was the accompanist but you'll look it up and and I, na- I laid into Hound Dog because clearly and then they had me read a scene and then they gave me an adjustment and they were at r- reading me for Knicky yeah and I just committed to it and I'll never forget leaving that audition and they saying from the darkened theater thank you see you again and the writer standing up saying yeah, real soon. And, you know, you walk out of the theater and it's, it's like the birds are singing yeah, and you want yeah, to tap dance magic. down 45th yes. Street. So, yes. you know, and so I got cast in the National Tour of Greece. It was the best acting job or the the most you know, lucrative acting job. And yeah. it, it was $450 a week at the time, I can remember. And, but the th- we th- we, and I was so thrilled when I got the job, when I got it, You know that I ran down to the Royale and I stood in the back just to watch it because it was still running on yeah. Broadway. Yeah. And I was watching it thinking, my God, I'm going to be gonna part be of this. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, intermission, the lights go down. I turn to the kid to my left. I say, good show, right? He says, yeah. I said, I'm going to be in it. He said, me too. And it was John Travolta, <laughs> age, uh, age 18. Age 18. Good kid. Nah, and we and so it began. And we went into rehearsals and I toured in Greece for 10 months. And yeah. then when Timmy Myers left the show, who was the original Kanicke, I was asked to come in and do it on Broadway. And oh. I did it at the Royale for 10 months. And, wow.
1: and that was your debut. Yeah, yeah. Yeah,
0: it was uh it was bliss. And, oh, you know, yeah. how do you can imagine, you know. Uh, it's like it's like any kid who grows up wanting to play baseball. Yeah. You want to end up in Yankee Stadium. Course, I'm sorry, yeah. and there I was in Yankee Stadium, yeah. except it was yeah. called the Royale Theater, and
1: it was Greece. And yeah.
0: It was Greece, and God, we thought we were the hottest shits in the you know <laughs> on the planet. Well, we did, you know. But again, it was all consistent with just wanting to act, wanting to act, mm-hmm. wanting to work, and that show led to another show, mm-hmm. and. Uh, and all, all this time, I had been involved with the Ensemble Studio Theater.
1: Okay, tell us a little bit was, about that. Well, yeah. my
0: acting teacher, who visited us at Smith and directed us at Smith College my last semester at Smith, directed us in a production of The Crucible. He said, when, when you come to New York, if you come to New York, I've got an acting class, please join me. So uh, several of us did, yeah. Kurt Dempster. Mm-hmm. And one day he came in, he said, I got a space on 52nd Street, and we're going to make it a theater. And so we all, the, all the acting students and various other colleagues at Kurtz, went up to that space on 52nd Street with, mm. you know, paintbrushes yeah. and scrapers and ladders and yeah. we turned it into a theater. Wow. And so the reason I tell you this is that I continued to act there and it was there around 1979 or 78 that I began directing. And that's... At the Ensemble Studio Theater. And again, you know, this is... This only is these careers are made out of a combination of luck, persistence, you <laughs> know, a <laughs> talent, I talent? suppose, yeah, yeah. yeah, but really persistence and passion, you know, and luck i a friend of mine said, "I read this play, I want to do this part, we'll just do it not as a formal production, do you want to direct it and I thought, well, okay, never I, considered directing before. never, never, and then i uh, I directed this informal production of the play, it was called A Soft Touch by Neil Cuthbert, and it went, it was gangbusters, and it was hysterically yeah. funny, yeah. and uh, I stood in the back and listened to the laughter and, mm-hmm. uh, and discovered how much I loved orchestrating mm-hmm. the lives between two or more actors on stage, you know, controlling what the audience heard, when they heard it, you know, what not to say, when to say it, you mm-hmm. know, just orchestrating the music of a play. Mm -hmm. And I began that. And then, again, luck. Uh, The Ensemble Studio Theater has a one-act marathon series that they've done for years now. Mm -hmm. And back in those days, all the scripts that had been chosen for uh, inclusion were stacked in the lobby of the theater. And all members were able to just read them and, you know, say, I'd like to be involved or audition for it or something. And it was there that I read a copy of Christopher Durang's Sister Mary Ignatius Explains It All For You. Now, I had acted in a play by Chris called The History of the American Film, Mm -hmm. the preceding year at Hartford. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I'm going on too long. Tell me I'm nope, not. No, <laughs> this, is, this is exactly
2: what we love. And this so, is exactly and what we so love. so
0: I call Chris Durang up and I say, Chris, hi, listen, sweetie, I just, you, I just read your play. Sister Mary Ignatius all, explains it all for you. And, and it's fantastic. And I know, and I've never, can I direct it? Would you let me direct it? You know? And wow. uh, I love this play. And he consulted with his agent who later became my agent, Mm -hmm. a woman by the name of Helen Merrill, and they said, okay, and I did it with the great Elizabeth Franz in the leading role, and all of a sudden there was an explosion at the Ensemble Studio Mm Theatre over this play. Um, It didn't proceed onto a commercial production, because I don't think anyone at the theatre in the position of leadership at the time was interested in the broader audience, you know? But two years later, Andre Bishop at Playwrights Horizons uh, said, I want to do this, and will you direct it? And we went on to do it at the West Side Arts, Mm -hmm. uh, Sister Mary Ignatius, and the curtain raiser was the actor's nightmare. Mm -hmm. And suddenly, I was finding myself transitioning from acting to directing, Mm -hmm. and the great thing that I discovered was that it really didn't matter what you looked like as a director. <laughs> you weren't being cast. No, you know, okay. really depended on your ideas and your skill and your ability to make the music right. and the play work with people. You're working yeah. with more personalities. Totally. You know. Yeah. you know, but I was. You know, it's it's why I came late to the came late to the appreciation of the visual elements of any given production mm-hmm. because I was focused on. Having two actors mean what they say to each other, you know. That's all. You know, I mean, but and that's and you never exactly right. Mm -hmm. It's and and so I've been I've been working on that, trying to get it right ever since. That's (laughs) that's that's the long story. Sum up,
2: yeah. Now, before you transition to directing, though, you got to work with Zero
0: Mostel. It was the best. Uh, Yes, Uh, Jay Harnick, who is one of the founders of Theater Works, was also a, a director. And he directed a production of um, The Rothschilds first, so I got to do that. Mm-hmm. I played Nathan, the eldest son, opposite Theodore oh. and Then he was doing a production of Fiddler on the Roof, and he asked me to be Mendel, the rabbi's son, and to understudy at mm-hmm. uh, which I did and loved, because it was all original choreography, all of, you know, Jerry Robbins stuff. and. Yeah. Again, it was, I loved the show. And then the following year, Zero took it out again. But the fellow playing model was ill. And Jay asked me if I would do model opposite Zero. And so for the next six months, I received the greatest acting lessons any young actor could possibly get. You know, uh, oh, golly, I loved him. And he... uh, he, we had a rapport. Zero, he liked nine. you. He liked yeah, me. That's that was a good one, thing. From what a, we've heard, it's that a it, really good zero thing. If zero
1: likes you, that's a good thing. Because
0: <laughs> if he doesn't, the contempt was unedited. You know, yeah. it was. But no, he liked me, and and but he would give me notes on stage. Wait, you know, what? And, yeah. No, I know, I know. But he would, and that son of a gun was always right. So, for example, <laughs> so for example. Um, there was a moment where uh, Muddle comes in saying, Reptevia, Reptevia, and Tevia is davening. He's praying. Yeah. He's walking around. his And we never rehearsed it. Right. He said, just follow me. Just follow me. Just keep saying Reptevia. Just follow okay. me. I said, okay. And the first time we really did it fully was in front of an audience, 3,000 people. Oh my. And so I followed him, Reptevia, 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 and the, the laugh would build because he... He heard me, but he didn't really hear me, and, he, and the audience would love the fact that he didn't quite understand yeah. where that noise was coming from. <laughs> Finally, and unexpectedly, he whirled on me and yelled, What is it? And I recoiled backwards, and it got an enormous laugh, and then I inhaled to say my next line, and he said, Don't move. Don't move. <laughs> and that's how Jerry learned to hold for a laugh. He said, "Don't move." You know, I mean, and he was right. He was right. I loved working with him. He was a great actor, <laughs> yeah. you know. And he, for all the shtick that he did, when he stood there and sang, "May the Lord protect and defend you," you believed you were in the home of the man. You were. In, you believed yes. you were in Debbie's home, yes. and you know, it was a huge, huge privilege to share a stage with him. Who, who were some of your comedy idols growing up? Well, I, I went to see. Um, Growing up, uh, Abbott and Costello, you know, growing, I mean, just beyond, I saw everything that they did. Uh, I I love Phil Silvers. I love Jackie Gleason, all on television, Mm -hmm. because I would be deposited in front of the TV with my meal, and I would sit there, and I was starved for comedy. I was Mm -hmm. starved to, I loved laughing. It just made Mm -hmm. everything in life seem better, because I was an anxious kid, you know, Uh, and you know, everything was better when it was funny.
2: And then another person he got to work with who left us way too soon was Lynn Thigpen. Oh, yeah. Would you tell well, us a little bit about working with her?
0: It was a dream. You know, we were fellow actors in a show called Tin Types, and Tin Types had a five-actor cast. Um, myself, Lynn, Trey Wilson, Mary Catherine Wright, and Carolyn Mignini. Oh, good job. Yeah. And uh, Lynn was tremendously talented, and a tremendously open person. And we, it was left to us, the five actors, to come up with a lot of the silent routines Mm. in the show. And I would go home, and I'd work them out in my head, you know. But it always involved saying to an actor, well, I'll do this, and then maybe you could do that, Mm -hmm. you know. And that's a really not good position to put another actor in, being told what to do right. by another actor. Kind of like it. the golden
1: rule of yes. what not to do. I, no, like, you yeah. do not do that. Yeah. You do not do that.
0: Unfortunately, I was guilty of that quite a bit as an actor. But here it was called upon, I was called upon to do that, and Lynn couldn't have been a better collaborator. And I'm, mm-hmm. she would sing, uh, Nobody, I ain't got nobody, nobody. Right? Yes, yeah, that, the uh, Williams. Yes, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. And that wonderful, rich... Uh, Alto voice I I just Went right to Kishka's You know It was uh, Really something So I loved her She was a great Special one uh, A real special one
2: What do you look for Out of an actor When they come to Audition for you
0: Credibility Credibility. Credibility. I want you know, an audition is such a delicate you know process that it begins from the moment the person comes in the door you know, mm-hmm. and I just want a hello uh, and uh, and and no no small talk really, right. uh, and then I want them to sing their song, if if it's a musical, yeah. and I don't want them to sing it to me, do not ever sing it to me. Mm-hmm. Put the person you're singing to on the back wall over my head mm-hmm. and mean everything you say. Don't ever close your eyes when you're singing because a lot of people love to close their eyes because yeah. their feelings. Feel yeah. The minute you close your eyes, you shut off the window to your soul for the person watching you. Yeah. And so, you know, so I I first I listen I listen to the quality of the voice. Some people have thrilling voices, other people do not. Someone with a thrilling voice, Mm -hmm. you know, does that. It thrills you, and then I want to work with that person. Um, I want to work, I want to see, I want to give them notes. I want to give them adjustments. Mm -hmm. I want to see if they finish my sentences Mm -hmm. or not. I want to try to imagine what life with this person in the rehearsal room would be like, you know? and then if there are scenes to be read, I want to believe that they've got their attention more on the other guy mm-hmm. than on, them, uh, than on yeah. themselves, you know? And there's years of... I could give you many specifics about, yeah. you know, how an actor can betray where their attention is. Mm-hmm. By the way, they deliver a line. I like people who make their points. It's what I'm doing now. Yeah. I don't know what I'm going to say next, but I'm going to make right. my points yeah. until you interrupt me or until I run <laughs> out of things yeah. to say. Yeah. But I'm going to make my points. I... I the example I use is if you have a speech that says I love you 50 times I would rather have someone say I love you 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 rather than try to find 50 interesting ways to say I yeah. love you mm-hmm. I I love you I I I'm not interested in yeah. that you it's know yeah. it's phony yeah. it's yeah. self involved yeah. and you can take this to the bank. If you can succeed in making the other person more important to you than yourself, you will succeed in making the audience pay attention yeah. to you much harder. Right. So that these are some of the things, yeah. you know? Yeah. I'm looking for physical attributes based on the needs of the role, you know? Uh, but sometimes... It, you know, it just talent will out, wow. you know, and Guys and Dolls' uh, Nicely, Nicely Johnson was originally played by a heavy actor, Stubby K, right. heavy fellow, you know. A lot of his lines were ca- uh, tailored to the fact that he was heavy. Right. So when I was auditioning, I was looking for every overweight character character actor in the city and they all came in and they were all okay but Walter Bobby came in and was thrilling right he was thrilling and Walter and I had done Grease together so we'd known each other but there was just no denying that he was the most dynamic of the performers to come in so he got the part you know Nathan Lane uh, you know uh, uh, Nathan Detroit is supposed to be Jewish-esque Uh I suppose, you know? Well, Nathan had nothing to do with being Jewish. Nathan Lane, that is. But he was hysterically funny. He made me laugh. Everything Mm. he said made me laugh. (laughs) I believed... I believed... What I look for is the capacity to make things life and death, mm-hmm. and that's something that some actors can do, mm-hmm. and something that some can't. Yeah. It's the ones who are capable of making believe as though their lives depended on it yeah. that make me pay attention to them.
2: When you were acting, did you follow some, you know, an acting methodology? You were Stanislavski, Meisner? Or are you just no, gut instinct and off we go?
0: No, it was a uh, my, my training was uh, Kurt Dempster was my main acting teacher, and he had studied with Sandy Meisner and. The neighborhood Playhouse. Mm, yeah. So we did a lot of Meisner exercises, you know. But I can't say that I really was a real student of it. I just tried to mean what I, what yeah, I was yeah, saying, you yeah. know, and try to do it in a way that would make people care or, better believe yet, it. laugh, yeah. believe it, or you know. Laughter. Well, the laughter would only come if they believed it, the you know. Truth, when I, yeah. yeah, and, and, uh, oh, it's, it's, um, you know, so anyway. Is there a science to comedy? Yeah. Well, there's it's part science, it's part inspiration and art certainly, but there's music in comedy. There's rhythm in comedy. You know, Uh, you know when like how
1: zero would knew to tell you, don't move. You know, there is a tremendous
0: power in making the audience imagine what you're thinking, Mm -hmm. knowing when not to talk. That's good. You know, Uh, you and you want to give the audience an opportunity. To imagine what's going on in your head. So that when Dolly is trying to hide Cornelius in the closet from Vandergelder and Vandergelder approaches the, co- the closet and they sing uh, motherhood right. and it ends with her saying, and so you see, there couldn't possibly be a man in that closet. And you hear from the closet, chew." <laughs> now Dolly, it's important Dolly not move. It's important Dolly not move. And, and, and that she give the audience a chance to imagine what she's thinking. Yeah. How am I gonna get out of this? I now the audience I'm is starting to laugh. to laugh already. So that when Dolly inhales as if to speak and goes, and then changes her mind and doesn't say anything, the audience continues to laugh. Mm-hmm. Then she starts to speak again. She inhales and she changes her mind and she just thinks, oh God, what am I gonna do? What am I gonna say all to herself? And then finally she says, God bless you. And it's <laughs> funny, but the pump has been primed rhythmically, you know?
2: Now, when you're staging that scene, do you lay that out for the actors first, saying, here's what you're going to do?
0: Mm, sometimes, not always. Sometimes uh-huh. I, I wait to see what the actor is going to do with that moment. And then if they're really inspired, they'll do something very funny on their own. Or I, if not, I'll say, ooh, 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 wait, what happens if don't, you don't move? Mm-hmm you know mm-hmm. so i think to the extent that music rhythm is a part of comedy uh, there is a science to it mm-hmm. but so much of it hinges on like i said previously the actor's ability to behave perform as though their life depended on it yeah. mm-hmm. you know what do you want what are you going to do to get it don't show me what you're feeling mm-hmm. show me what you're doing because of the way you feel yeah. And making that distinction for actors is a lesson I wish I could, Mm -hmm. you know, just because you're sad doesn't mean you behave sadly. You know, you're sad because of this. Now, what are you going to do about it? I'm sad because I'm afraid you're going to leave the room and I need you to stay with Mm -hmm. me. So I'm not going to be sad. If I'm sad, then you're going to just want to get out. No, I'm going to try to keep you in the room as much as I can based on what the playwright has given me.
2: So it's a lot of playing the positive.
0: Protect. The possibility of a happy ending. Mm. If I, you know, you've heard the definition of acting truthful imagination, yeah, yeah. in a, tr- truthful behavior mm-hmm. in imaginary circumstances. Yeah. I would say truthful behavior that's designed to protect the possibility of, lo- as long as possible, of a happy ending in imaginary circumstances. Right. So, yes, positive choices. People say positive choice. What does that mean? It means behaving in a way that's consistent with you getting what you want. Yes. Yeah, getting what you need, you know. That's what makes it interesting to an audience. Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> now, what was the show
2: that you think put you on the map as a director? Where people said, "Oh, Jerry's not just an actor anymore; he's a he's a director."
0: Well, Sister Mary ran for about three or four that years was, off yeah, Broadway. Uh-huh. You know, and people started. But anyone can do it once. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> could get lucky. Who yeah, knows? No, you know. That's true. But I think, um, I think, and I, I continue to direct off Broadway. Quite a bit. Um, After Sister Mary, I I think I directed The Foreigner. Mm -hmm. I I directed several of Chris's, Chris Doreen's plays. Beyond Therapy. Beyond Therapy, Baby with the Bathwater, and The Marriage of Bet and Boo. And the year that I did The Marriage of Bet and Boo at the Public Theater, I had also done the same year The Foreigner right across the street at the Astor Place Mm -hmm. Theater. The Foreigner was one of the funniest plays I've ever done, ever, by Larry Shue. And to have both of them running at the same time, was made me feel like I sort of was beginning to figure this out a little yeah. bit. Right. But at, at, during the run of uh, Marriage of Bet and Boo, Greg Mosier and John Guare came up to me and said, we're going to restart the Lincoln Center Theater, which had um, languished. Mm. And uh, would you like to do the House of Blue Leaves? Now, here's where luck comes into it. You know, I had... I had directed The House of Blue Leaves as a visiting artist at Dartmouth College the summer before. I had fallen in love with the play. Mm. I did what I thought was a pretty damn good job of it, you know? But the idea that I was asked to direct this at Lincoln Center, that was sort of a big moment. And the production went really well, you know? It was, uh, it was, it was, it brought John's. Play a life. In fact, I just spoke with him this morning and I love him to pieces, John Ware, you know? Yeah. And so he says to say hi. <laughs> good. Hello, good job. Yes. Um, yeah, no, so, but I think House of Blue Leaves, you know, it, mo- it, went, it started the new house, it moved up to the Beaumont. Mm-hmm and then it was el- eligible for Tony's no want a Tony for that yeah. and so now
2: you had a long collaboration with Christopher Durang and John Guer- how early do you like to be involved in the creation of a play do you want to see the first draft do you like to be surprised
0: <laughs> i never like to be surprised <laughs> <laughs> no surprises for this never man. like to be surprised no uh, it depends on house of blue leaves was written yeah I mean, please, it was written. Uh, Several years later, uh, he uh, he gave me Six Degrees of Separation, and with the exception of moving one scene from here to there or there to here, it was done. Mm. I mean, the big challenge on Six Degrees was trying to figure out what the physical vessel would be to contain this play. Mm-hmm. And there I had the unbelievable help of Tony, oh, okay. Tony Walton. Oh, the great Tony Walton. The great, yes. the great, Tony. great, great Tony Walton. Yeah. You know, he and I did uh, House of Blue Leaves mm-hmm. together. We did Anything Goes together, Six Degrees of Separation, and The Front Page, all at Lincoln Center. We did Lend Me a Tenor together on Broadway. Oh, he always... He always made me better, you know, and I loved our collaboration. It was Tony who encouraged me to go with a more abstract set rendering for Six Degrees of Separation, because it begins in an apartment, it yeah. begins yeah. in a house, it right. begins in a place that you would think would have walls. So
1: literal, yeah, so yeah. indeed.
0: Yeah. But then he said, but it was Tony who said, but look, on page twenty-eight, it goes here, then it goes there, then it goes here, and pretty soon we real, we worked, we kept talking and talking, and we realized that if we had two sofas and just the Kandinsky above, we could represent all the locations with a back wall that had a couple of above-in-limbo spaces where people could appear and disappear. Judy was boring. Hello. Then, Judy
2: discovered ChumbaCasino.com.
0: It's my little escape.
2: Now, Judy's the life of the party.
0: Oh, baby, Mama's bringing home the bacon.
2: Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. (laughs) That's chumbacasino.com.
1: No purchase necessary. V proof. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
2: Hey, podcast listeners, are you looking for a place to rehearse in New York City that is clean, spacious, and most importantly, affordable? Come check out Shetler Studios and Theaters, our wonderful host for these podcasts. Shetler is centrally located on West 54th Street between Broadway and 8th Avenue, right in the heart of the theater district. Right in the heart, you'll find music, dance, and acting
1: studios, complemented by two black box theaters and six presentation venues. The professional facilities, inspired environment, and expert industry staff combined to provide the new york artist with an unparalleled studio experience
2: visit their website at shetlerstudios.com that's s-h-e-t-l-e-r studios.com shetler studios and theaters is our home for recording the legends of broadway and we hope that you make it your artistic home too that's shetler s-h-e-t-l-e-r studios.com see you here Let's talk a little bit about the rehearsal process. So it's the first day. Everyone is looking at you. <laughs> what do you do?
0: What do I, first of all, I... T- <laughs> That's really yeah. funny. Because I just did that for the... We're doing a, a dance lab for Music Man. And we just, I just did that oh, good. before I came here. Fresh. They a brand new a bunch of people. And I say, look, aren't we lucky? Right. Aren't we lucky? That was the first thing I said to the cast of Hello Dolly.
2: Mm.
0: Aren't we... How lucky are we? And then, of course, everyone sort of cheers, and we acknowledge that gift that we've been given. And I say, my rules are real simple, you know. Be nice. Be kind. Do not even think of directing another actor. Mm -hmm. Do not even think of commenting on what another actor does. Do not allow your personal agenda to ever upstage the work. The work is the most important thing. So if you've had a bad day... You know, go outside, scream and rant and act out and then come back in. The rehearsal room is a special, sacred kind of place, you know. And so uh, um, treat it that way. Treat each other that way. And if you want to protect the possibility of me hearing you, you will not suggest something in front of everyone else. You will not... Mm-hmm. Say, I what what if I do this here, here and here? Because now I have to answer that question in front of I an deal audience. With you. Yes. Yeah. I can't really, really give it consideration. Mm-hmm. So I make I sort of ast- I lay out what the rules of the game are, <laughs> you know. Uh, it's simply uh, as simply as that, I think. Do you have you a know?
2: discussion about what the vision of the piece is going to be? I, I,
0: I don't usually I I usually say the play is about Two hours, and uh, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> no, but but not to be glib, oh, no. you know. I yeah. know what it's about, you know. I yeah. I know, and if people want to talk to me about what, but usually what the play is about is not necessarily actable by you. Exactly. Correct. You, it's a you know? picture. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Very. That's and also, <laughs> also, you know the actor knows what's on page 25 on page 1 yeah. the character does not right. No. Right? right and for the actor to understand that and realize that the task is really a lot simpler than the, they don't have to fulfill the entire play in the first couple of pages yeah. that's what it's yeah. you know that's part of the process so i try to make that clear and then i try to gently guide them through the process of bringing a scene to life you know and Depending on the person, it's you know, or in the play, yeah. it's a little bit different from, from project to project. Yeah. But the basic idea is to get people to be unself conscious enough and unafraid enough to really take chances in the rehearsal room without fear of being embarrassed. Mm. Yeah. As an actor, I was embarrassed three or four times in my life. I can remember it, I can remember the moments. Vividly, and I vowed never, never to do that to actors. And I've tried. I've, I've tried to, you know, live like that. You know, occasionally I'll get a little impatient, but I try not to let it get the better of me. You know, um, yeah. I'll never forget. I went up one day auditioning for Gower Champion, actually singing a song for Gower Champion, and I went up in the song and I couldn't remember the lyrics, and it was awful. You know, and the casting director was so embarrassed by me that he made me feel like a schmuck, yeah. you know? And I'll never forget it. The, you know, the Talmud oh. writes about embarrassing someone being yeah. close to murder. It's an awful thing to do. So to this day, when an actor goes up in a song when they're singing for me, I'll immediately say, no, no, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It does, it's okay. I don't care. I don't care. Start all over again. What? It's just, you know, let's just come on, you know? Do you do a lot of table work? Yeah, I, I do enough so that people understand what they mean what, they mean, what they're saying they uh, I, I like the words as written mm-hmm. in the first read through yeah. I don't like actors who use the script as a point of departure <laughs> I'm really not interested in that right. at all I still don't get that no, no I'm I, I, well you know it comes under the heading of making it my own yeah, you know, yeah, well, there's a writer right here, yeah, you know. Come on, no, like, you know, think right.
1: you could do it better? But, right, but,
0: yeah. so I make those, you know, I, you know, and we do, we, and, I get, you know, you can begin to act the scene sitting down around the table when you know what it is you're trying to do, right. Yeah, you know, and then we get up on our feet, and, uh, you know, after we've gone through it once or twice, mm-hmm. and, you know, uh, uh, um, if, if it's a musical... If it's a musical, I'll devote the first week to uh, people learning the music, learning steps, learning the words, the lyrics, the notes, so that when they're standing up on their feet and acting the scenes, they're not thinking about Mm -hmm. it, you know? You can't be free. You can't appear to be free and spontaneous if you're trying to remember what it is you have to say. Do you pre-block? In my, yes, oh yes, at home, absolutely, but I don't let the actors know that, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, oh, and I have so much fun. I used to love doing it, and I still do it. I'll sit with my associate, Steve Edland, who is invaluable, and uh, oh, we'll say, okay, first scene. He enters from, what do you think? I think he should come in from here. Uh, and at what point in the music? Right here, okay. Yes, I will create a rough draft that I will have as backup, mm-hmm. that I will refer to when... I don't know what to do and no one, re- when people need to be told where to begin mm-hmm. and from where to begin. So I will, I'll work out a blocking that tickles me. Wouldn't it, you know. But
1: you like yeah. actors that come with their own ideas as well.
0: Totally, like, Yeah. totally, that's why I say, you know, let's yeah, start of here, course. let's see what happens. Right. And then an actor will do something that is not designed to really get them what they need or want and I'll point it out to them. And, and and then I will suggest an alternative yeah. that might do that. Mm-hmm. I can remember as though it were yesterday, you know, and may I tell a quick story yeah, the house of leave. House oh, of Blue Leaves, Leaves you know, Swoozy Kurtz, the great Swoozy Kurtz oh, yeah. was playing bananas. And in fact I just we just exchanged birthday greetings. <laughs> Hi Swooz. Anyway, um, yes, she was playing bananas and at the beginning of the play. Art, she's been in, she's been confined to her room for six months. She's clinically depressed and in a bad way, mm-hmm. and she she leaves her bedroom to see, unbeknownst to them, her husband and his mistress cavorting on stage, and then she goes away. And then the mistress goes home, and her she comes into the room, and Artie's about to go to work. He's a zookeeper, and he's getting dressed to go to work, and. Swoosie, for the first couple of days, was trying to fulfill the clinical state of mind of her character. Mm-hmm. The fact that she was depressed, that she was out of it, that she was probably medicated. In a way that kept her from actively playing what she needed and what she wanted. And once, we were, once I was able, I couldn't figure out why it was not working. It just felt uninteresting. And then I realized she's not actively trying to keep Artie home. Mm-hmm. What she wants is for him not to leave her alone. What she wants is for him not to go to work. And the brilliant John Ware has written words for her where she commutes from, I love you, I love you, I hate you, I hate the way you look, I hate. The, but I really love you. And it, it, she does everything, if it's all in service of trying to keep him in the room, then you as audience care. You know, yes. You go to you know laugh 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 look laughter it's the sound of an audience falling in love period mm-hmm. it's what it should be so i try to get the audience laughing as soon as possible so they start falling in love with the characters as soon as possible so that when the shit hits the fan for the characters they care they care, yeah. they yes. care. yes it's math it's music you know yeah. mm-hmm. but there's no no one's written down written it right. all down all you have is the bible the script and you try. Right. You keep going back to that, trying to figure out why, what you're doing is working or isn't working, or how it could work better. Right. I just came up with a great idea for a music man. I wish I could tell you, but I can't.
2: That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see it. We'll see it. You will. Yeah. Has, there, has there ever been a time that you were working on a production and about halfway through you thought, "Oh no, this is on the wrong track."
0: Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. And oh, what? And what do you do? Oh, it was, it was really hard. You know. Um, Yes, that's happened to me several times, particularly early on. And it usually ends with me having to replace someone. Mm -hmm. And it's the hardest thing, I think, that a director has to do. I think, you know, to acknowledge that you've made a mistake and to, you know, momentarily at least destroy someone's life by saying, you're not going to do it, I have to replace you. And, uh, you know, it happened in one play where... Oh, goodness. I replaced someone who was originally in the actor's... I won't say any names, obviously, but I replaced someone in the actor's nightmare who was a close friend of mine with someone who came in and gave a knockout audition. So I had the awful task of telling my friend he wasn't going to be in the play. Then two weeks into rehearsal, it becomes clear that the fellow who was in the play would laugh, would crack up every time he did something funny. Oh. It was... It was really shocking. Now I had run into that previously, and when I said to the actor, "Is this going to be a problem for you?" it it went away immediately. You know, but with this person, it it, it, he he couldn't control it, and it became clear the other actors were, you know, in in trouble. Uh, uh, they, They just were unhappy. You could see it because it was. Keeping the life from happening on stage. <laughs> so long story short, I replaced that man with my friend who it originally was going to do. So it had a happy it's ending. It's a happy ending. You know, but it happens, you know? Yeah. It, it happened recently. It happened years ago. I think it, it, it's it's happened. And you, one's inclination is to find all sorts of excuses for why things aren't going well, right. except the re- acknowledging the reason it is, because you know that telling that person is going to involve tremendous stress, both for them and for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Neil Simon, working uh, with Neil Simon.
2: Would you tell us a little bit about this collaboration?
0: Neil Simon, I go, uh, God, because I can visualize this letter that he wrote to me that I have framed on my wall mm-hmm. that starts with, sometimes you make me cry, go figure. Oh. I love this man. Um, you know, I generally... Would be uncomfortable with writers sitting in re- in, re- in on rehearsals mm-hmm. yeah. until I had a draft of something to show them, yeah. you know. Right. But it was Neil Simon, and <laughs> and he tried to make me understand that he was not not sitting there judging my staging or my work with the actors. He was listening to the play, mm. and sure enough, I was one of those lucky guys or women who w- w- would w- would have Neil Simon tap them on the shoulder and say, "Jerry, read this." And he would give me a rewrite. And so as I'm reading the rewrite, and it was invariably funny and smart Mm -hmm. and good, I would be thinking, I am the first person in the world (laughs) to read a Neil Simon line. And I'm sorry, for the little Jewish kid from Patterson, New Jersey, it's never grown old, you know? So anyway, it was great. He was a a remarkable collaborator and uh, a brilliant writer and a brilliant rewriter. And... um, You know, I did Laughter on the 23rd Floor with him and 45 Seconds to Broadway. And unfortunately, he became ill during 45 Seconds to Broadway and couldn't participate in the way that he wanted to. But uh, talk about an ear. Talk about, you know... Genius talent. And hearing yeah. the
1: music and comedy, really, like you're talking about. Hearing
0: the music and yeah. comedy yeah. and ha- knowing how to create conflict mm-hmm. and be able to justify every character wanting what they wanted, yeah. mm-hmm. even if it was at the expense or in conflict with, you know, look at right. the Odd Couple. I yeah, mean, it's I brilliant, mean, you know, or any any one of his great plays.
2: So, loved working with him. There's two them. actors that you return to a lot, or they return to you a lot Nathan Lane and Lewis Stadlin. <laughs> <laughs> we had Lewis on the show. I, Lewis, I love yeah. Lewis.
0: Well, he makes me laugh. He is. Is. On he's, and off the stage. He's, you know, it's, he's got the gift. Yeah. And, and Nathan has the gift, mm-hmm. you know, of the gift of credibility, mm-hmm. of commitment, of timing. Timing, again, what is timing? Timing mm-hmm. is knowing when to talk and when not to talk. Mm-hmm. As, knowing yeah. when to, that's yeah. what it is, yeah. you know? It's like knowing, you know, knowing when, you, when to start to talk and then change your mind. Or, you, you know, uh, yes, and both of them, both of them, both Nathan and Lewis, are craftsmen. Yes. You know, with Nathan, I came up with this opening to a funny thing that happened on the way to the forum where the premise was, this is a rep company, and they do comedies and tragedies, mm-hmm. right? And alternate nights. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. And tonight, and why is this night different? Manashtana Hawaii, why is this night different, right? <laughs> this night is different because Soothless comes out and he sings, Tragedy tomorrow, comedy tonight. And I said, the curtain goes up and they're oh, doing the Medea. Tra- <laughs> they're doing Medea. I mean, that, that was how Robbie Marshall got the, yeah, got, got the gig to choreograph it because when I said to him... You know, should we do a better version of Jerry Robbins' comedy tonight, or should we do something different? And he went, oh, something different, something different. I said, okay, here it is. This is what we do. And, you know, and and that's what we did. He jumped on it, this idea that they mistakenly put on it. That was the springboard into the evening.
1: Right.
0: Well, if I could tell you the joy in (laughs) analyzing and dissecting with Nathan... You know, the reaction because what happens is he would go, Tragedy tomorrow, comedy tonight. Curtain would fly and there was tragic music. <clears throat> ba-da, 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 ba-da. You know, breasts being Sherman Strum- really, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 it yes. was really tragedy. And for ten seconds, and then the curtain came down. <laughs> and we went right to the vamp. And I could still ba-da- hear Nathan's
1: line that he has next.
0: Well, that's the thing. Before he spoke. We wanted to get as many laughs yep. before he spoke. And it involved him freezing <laughs> so that when the curtain came down, he didn't move. No reaction. No reaction. Now the audience is imagining what's it's going ahead on. Of his. Yes. They're imagining what's going on in his mind mm-hmm. and they're laughing. Then he starts to talk to us. He goes, and then he looks back at the curtain. <laughs> he does a take back. Did I really see what I thought I just saw? Second laugh. Then he looks at us and he goes, and he doesn't <laughs> smile. Now you notice there was no sound. Yeah. So I, I would. It was up to me to say, Nathan. That him laughing like that is wonderful. Vocalize it. We got to hear it. Yeah. So he would go. <laughs> <laughs> now the entire audience can hear him. And that back and forth. And it's the same with Louis Statlin, yeah. You know, I, it's the back and forth. That's why the shirt I wear that says rehearsal is I the best that. part. I mean, that's because it's in that mo- yeah. those moments. That we really play it, you know. It's sort of like you know foreplay in the best in the best yeah, way, yeah, you know. Yeah. It and just so
1: you would plan that. You would figure out almost mathematically with Nathan. You guys would sort of try to figure it out and, and figure out the best way to get the biggest laugh.
0: The number of laughs. Yeah, you got three laughs, yep. and and you better make sure that the fourth and fifth laugh are bigger than the first one. It has to. Yeah, and that. And as long as that's happening, you can go. Now, someone oh. might call that milking. Well, I not saw. If he would, sorry, no, you, no, 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 but no, no. If it's no, rooted
1: no. in truth, like you said, that's you have someone exact. like Nathan Lane who can. Yeah. I don't want to ever
0: it. catch anyone trying to be funny. Yeah. That's and there. Right. It's a high wire act. And My so gosh. that's. Yeah. That's so, so cool. And Louis, I mean, you know, yes. we've done a million shows. Oh. And the la- latest is, you know, he was uh, Horace van der Gelder, and he was wonderful, you know, because he's a showman. and... I went to see him. I stood to see him three times in Minnie's Boys, back when. Yeah, yeah. Because I wanted to be in that show, oh, and I wasn't in that show. And I don't know if you, you know, if you get it. I don't know if there are clips of it, but him, his version of Groucho Marx was unbelievable. Or, there's some on YouTube. There is. Yeah, yeah it, there's some jo- on YouTube. He's phenomenal. Uh, so you know. These are major leaguers. I like to play with major leaguers. I was going to say, you again. like being in the major Yeah, Totally, leagues. totally.
2: So, when it comes time to direct Guys and Dolls, yes. and everyone's telling you, my what favorite. everyone,
0: that's right. Yes, yeah. Yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. Yeah.
2: Go ahead. So, everyone says to you, this is my favorite musical. Right. That's code for.
0: Don't f- screw it up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Don't screw it up. Now, here's where my lack of literacy regarding Broadway shows comes in handy. I'd never seen Guys and Dolls, you know? So I read and listen to it as though it's a brand new show, you know? And I'm going, oh, my God, this is great. Holy (laughs) crap, you know? Whoa, whoa, this is really good. This is really great. And then you begin the process of trying to do it so that it feels as though it was written yesterday, you know? And... You have to pay. You have to listen to the play. That play, that musical, was written not unlike a lot of musicals of that period in a series of alternating in-one yeah. mm-hmm. in one full stage scenes. In one, set up the scene, fly the curtain, full stage, bring shut down in one scene. And if you try, I was determined to do it a different way. You know, and Cy Fuhrer, who was one of the original producers of it, said don't do it. (laughs) Don't do it. The show will bite you in the ass. Mm -hmm. You know, don't do it. And so, you know, uh, um, yes, the expectations were very high with that show. Mm -hmm. And it was a very difficult, difficult process because I had to replace one of the actors. Mm -hmm. And one of the actors I had to replace was a friend, Mm -hmm. you know, and but I had to do it. And the minute that was done, what hadn't been working, uh, a key romantic relationship in the show, suddenly began to work. And then I could give attention to stuff I had ignored for. Trying to help make right. that yeah. missing relationship work, but I mean, it's all on—you know—it's tick. Yeah. The clock is ticking, yeah. and you've got the pressure of people's expectations, yeah. all of whom have told you it's their favorite show. <laughs> <laughs> so you can tune that out now, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, uh, yeah, sort of. <laughs> well, you're I always that vulnerable. That the fire as well. I like, well, right it, then. I mean, yeah, yeah it does. I. I just am lucky enough to love doing what I do just as much now, Yeah, you know, yeah. Uh, being the age I am, and uh, as I did then. It's just, it's a humbling job. And just when you think you've got it figured out, you know, it hits it's, you, smacks you in the boy, face. It's and
1: wild. We, we were just, you know, celebrating Hal Prince because of yes. his passing, and this is a man who would would be have a hit, 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 and then all of a sudden, in the mid eighties, nothing, and then all of a sudden another hit. So it, it, you're right; it is a bit of a roller coaster, isn't it's, it?
0: Let me tell you, <laughs> back in two thousand, yes, I loved Hal, and because, well, a he was immensely talented, but he was the only guy who called me kid in the business. <laughs> you, you know, love that. but you know, back in two thousand, the Times did a little profile piece on basically what happened to. It really was a what happened to. And it was very, it was written very, the tone of it was very kind. Mm -hmm. But basically I'd had several shows that didn't work. And I said in 2000, uh, look, I still think my best work is ahead of me, you know? Mm -hmm. And I was right, Mm -hmm. you know? So yeah, it does. It's a heck of a business, you know? It can be humbling and exhilarating and then humbling and then exhilarating. And you just got to, you just got to know that you're in it for the long haul and you're going to have those ups and downs, yeah. you know. And you keep and you just keep rehearsing.
2: Television.
0: You do yes. do you like doing television? No. No, I don't. <laughs> I was no, not at all. I I Honesty. No, no, I don't. It pays it, so well. Yeah. yeah. And I was lucky enough to do about 20 episodes of Everybody Loves Raymond, mm-hmm. where they had the best writers, oh, yeah. the best showrunner, Phil Rosenthal, mm-hmm. you know, Ray and the other castmates were fantastic. and uh, But I never really mastered the craft of choreographing the four cameras. Mm. And truly... Um, that's a large part of what the, the director of episodic does yeah. is really get the shot, get the shot. You know, occasionally I'll I'd stage something that would be genuinely funny that was a surprise in the script, but it was very hard to make a suggestion to an actor and have him say, well, n- no, I don't think so. You know, and give reasons why they wouldn't do that. Oh. Well, yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm just not. I'm used to being trusted. Yeah, yeah. and I expect it, and I, you know wasn't everyone, but there was a moment where someone's back went out, went out in mid-sentence. And it went out, and he had to freeze. And he would insist on grabbing the sofa. And I said, I think it's funnier if, you don't have, if you're just in space. And he, he had about three reasons why he wanted to do it that way. We did a run-through uh, for the showrunner. You know, show and the showrunner said to him, you know, I don't think you should hold on to the furniture. And he went, no problem, got it. Now that's why yep yeah. he has, you go. no I like <laughs> I like the authority I have I like the control that I have mm-hmm. um, I like I like conducting if the musical director conducts the orchestra I conduct everything yeah, yeah I do and I conduct you know uh, uh, everything from the overture to the you know to what happens that, the rate of new ideas it's very important to establish at a high rate as soon as possible. Mm-hmm. Because you have, listen to me, I'm I'm bringing up my old my lines that I've said to people. You have 12 minutes to 15 minutes of goodwill from the audience. Yeah. You have a, a, a finite amount of time for them to really care and want to find out what happens next. Right. And if you squander that, you're in trouble because you can't get it back. Yeah. So... That informs a lot of the beginnings of shows that I, I do. Openings are very important to me. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. so.
2: And so now you got Mrs. Doubtfire coming up and then you got Music Man next season. Uh, you don't have to talk about details of the Music Man,
0: but what makes you wanna tell this story? What's Because it just spreads joy. I you know you know, not unlike Dolly. It's a show that makes people feel happy, you know, and grateful for having given it up, you know, two, two hours, two, whatever, two hours yeah. and 20 minutes of their time because it's made them feel better. Mm-hmm. I can't listen to that soundtrack without becoming yeah. happier, yeah. you know. And I love the idea. I love the love story, you know, this guy who prides himself on never having gotten his foot caught in the door. Mm -hmm. You know, never, you know, love him and leave him, man. Right. And onto the next scam. And that's, and the adrenaline. And all of a sudden, you know, again, why is this night different? Why is this moment different? This moment he discovers something else. Mm -hmm. And as Meredith Wilson has said, he's a good man who does bad things. Mm -hmm. That's Mm -hmm. all. He's a good man who does bad things. He doesn't expect to help out this little kid. He doesn't expect to you know, to, to deal with a woman on a, you know, equal standing, you know. Right. Ha- and so it creates joy. I love shows that are so-called joy machines, yeah. you know. Yeah. I was, you know, just reading an interview with Sasha Baron Cohen, who just has done this incredible series on Netflix called The Spy. Have you yeah. seen yeah. Yeah, it? Really My good. God almighty. He's damn good. But at the end of this interview, he said, uh, I think it was with The Times, I think he said, I love musicals. I love musicals. They're about joy. I love them. They make joy, you know? So I I, I love uh, being responsible for that. Yeah. I, I love doing that. I mean, I remember getting a beautiful letter from Joanna Gleason who came to Dolly against her will. She was going through a difficult time and had lost someone close to her or yeah. something. And, you know, uh, it was... a. Uh, it was a wonderful note of gratitude for making this moment in her life better because of what she experienced on the stage. So. You know, that's, that's why it's strong it, stuff. It? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, It's, it's, it's really, strong thing. it is, yeah. it's very, and we forget, you know, I mean, it, we forget what an impact we are capable of having because we're usually too busy trying to figure out how do we make this moment work or right. that's not the right tempo or, you know, yeah. uh, you're getting too angry too soon. Yeah. You want to protect the possibility? Stop, stop, don't so angry. And
1: yet you forget that there's some 19-year-old or 15-year-old who's going to a wonderful town for the first time and yeah. seeing joy and then it's... That's com-
0: right. Sh- changes you know yeah lives are changed I really believe it uh, as I as I as I say to my companies early on I guarantee you or just before the first preview or something there are going to be kids in that audience who fall in love with theater for the rest of their lives yep. because of what you're doing. Right. Think about that for a second, yeah. you know? Now get on and have a good time yep. right. and make sure you're prepared. Right. <laughs> yeah. Get
1: to, get to, work. Get <laughs> to work. work. No, you know. Yeah. Right. Oh, yeah,
0: I do. This has been
2: an absolute joy. Good. Thank you. And I'm, I'm going to add one more story if I can. One of the great things about doing this podcast is Kevin and I have gotten the chance to meet our heroes. <laughs> and when I was 13 years old, my parents taped The House of Blue Leaves off of PBS, and I watched it every single day when I was 13 really? years old, because I was, I was a child actor in L.A., but I watched it, and I said to my parents, I said, I want to do that, and they said, oh, you mean acting, and I said, no, that, meaning the direction, mm-hmm. um, you are the reason I got into directing.
0: You're going to, I'm going to uh, cry Me too. I oh, didn't know no idea. After four years
2: of all these episodes, I yeah. had no idea. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh my and God. If you go back to my home in LA, like on my bookshelf is that VHS cassette as a reminder. It's like a memento. Yeah. Like a, oh you, my you God. have. We get to meet our heroes doing go. this, and you have That's inspired really cool. me so much. So I just wanted to say thank you so much for well, that. You're welcome. You're, you just made my day. It it you, you made my life. Nah. So thank you. <laughs> Thanks.
1: All right. Until next time. Bye, everybody. Bye. My pleasure. Today's episode was recorded at Shetler Studios on 244 West 54th Street. Visit Shetler Studios to book your room today, and you could be as cool as us. That's S-H-E-T-L-E-R
2: studios.com. And a big thanks to our sound editor, Daniel Schwartzberg, and social media manager, Bethany Ann Selecki. And... Friends, don't forget, we want more folks to hear these incredible stories, and that's where you guys can come in and help us out. Yes, in order for people to find out about us, we need lots of ratings on iTunes. The more ratings, the more we'll come up in searches. So head on over to iTunes, search for Behind the Curtain Broadway's Living Legends, click on our logo, click on ratings and reviews, then write a review and leave us five stars and make us feel as special as Eliza Doolittle on Eliza Doolittle Day. Or you can leave us one star and make us feel as bad as Annie did
1: in that weird production in Boston where Annie dreamed about being adopted and then ended the show back in
2: the orphanage. True story, Rob was there. I saw it. So head on over to iTunes and make us feel even more special than we already do. (laughs)